If you love this podcast and love easy and informative CEUs, then this is the deal for you. SpeechTherapyPD.com has over 175 hours of pod courses on demand with an average of 19 new pod courses released each month. You can get ASHA continuing ed credit for every episode you listen to. And because I think you're terrific, I can offer $20 off a year's subscription when you use my code SUP20 for the insanely low rate of $59. Today's episode on the Speech Uncensored podcast is looking at dispelling myths in dysphagia management. And this is such an awesome topic because as Amanda went over all of these incredible resources and changes to her practice, I was just nodding my head because I was the same. You know, when I first started out, I believed these myths and that's how I practiced. And then as I became exposed to this information and dug into the research and took CEUs and listened to podcasts, I learned that there is a very different way we should be practicing. So I'm delighted to have Amanda Montemayor on the podcast today to guide us through this. And you know, she's not just dispelling myths, she's taking the time to help us shape our critical thinking processes in dysphagia management, and then giving us ideas and tools to tailor education and evidence to share with our colleagues, to share with um, the nursing staff and anybody else involved in that patient's care who might benefit from this information. So we're not here to just kind of beat you over the head and tell you what is and isn't, you know, current. We want to give you tools to implement this stuff. And Amanda just did such a great job. I loved it. I am Leanne Porter, your host, and this is the Speech Uncensored Podcast. Welcome to today's podcast episode, I'm sitting down with Amanda Montemayor, who's going to be talking about dispelling myths in dysphagia management. Um, This is such a good topic um, because sometimes we get some conflicting information. Sometimes we're taught one thing and then find out later it's maybe not best practice. And so we're just going to try to set the record straight today. So how are you doing today, Amanda? I'm doing great. How are you, Leanne? I'm doing well. Um, I'm really excited to dive into this topic and discuss all these points that you've uh, created for our talk today. Um, So before we get started into that, um, tell me a little bit about yourself, um, where you are, where you're practicing, and all those things. Yeah, so I'm a medical speech language pathologist currently working in the acute rehab setting um, in San Antonio, Texas. And I also occasionally PRN at a skilled nursing facility. And I've been practicing as an SLP for about four years now, um, and that's including my clinical fellowship year, which I completed at a skilled nursing facility. Um, And I ended up staying at that facility for about two more years after completing my CF. And I loved my time in the SNF, SNF for skilled nursing facility, for those that don't know. (laughs) And um, I had a wonderful relationship with my CF supervisor. She was very collaborative with me and open and receptive to new information that I might have brought in, whether it, whether it came from a CEU course that I had taken or an article that I read online. And so 
together we were constantly implementing new therapy approaches that were more evidence-based and tossing out old ones that were no longer evidence-based. And um, it was a lot of fun, a lot of learning. And I spent a lot of my time diving deeper into the dysphagia world during my time at the SNF and taking a lot of CEUs online and in person. And um, one in particular that I really enjoyed was the MBSIMP course. And that stands for Modified Barium Swallow Impairment Profile. <laughs> That's a long one. And um, essentially, that one is an online self-study course um, that helps us to standardize the MBSS, the Modified Barium Swallow Study, and to more objectively, more accurately uh, analyze the swallow and identify the impairments. And so I was able to kind of practice using that um, during my time at the SNF, but more so the analyzing part because I wasn't able to complete the studies on my own. Um, and so I eventually wanted to gain more hands-on experience and gain competency in complete, completing swallow studies and participate more um, during the evaluation process for swallowing. And so that's how I ended up where I'm at now at the rehab hospital. And so we complete them in-house with our radiology department. And I've been there for about a year now, and it's been a lot of learning and a lot of growing. And um, it's kind of interesting to see now the way that I approach and manage dysphagia versus at the very beginning of my CF year. It's almost entirely different. <laughs> um, but I'm thankful that, that it is different and that I've been able to learn from the courses that I've taken and um, get rid of the things that I was doing that were no longer evidence-based and apply better practices that showed better patient outcomes. Um, and I know that that's what we'll be talking about today, so I'm kind of excited about that. <laughs> right, yeah, I'm really excited. It's, I would have to agree with you. The dysphagia management that I practice now versus my CF year, or even last year is very different. And yeah, I just want to encourage like everyone who's listening, like we are continually refining, continually learning something new and seeing where that fits in with our practice and with our patient population. So it's, it's good to keep growing and developing over time. Like that's what we want. Exactly. Yeah, and there's always new information coming out as far as research within dysphagia. And so we constantly need to be staying updated and implementing new things and maybe just tossing out things that we find out are no longer best. And so we got to keep up with that. <laughs> and um, I also kind of wanted to talk about why this is important for us to know and to be keeping up with. And, you know, so as SLPs, we play a huge role in the patient's quality quality of life and health. And, you know, we can indirectly and sometimes even directly affect the patient's nutrition and hydration. And so if we're, quote unquote, winging it or don't apply the best therapy practices, you know, sometimes these consequences can include decreasing the patient's quality of life. And this can lead to malnutrition and dehydration and UTIs, and then they can end up rehospitalized and sometimes even death can occur. And you know, so we need to be able to identify when these practices are not evidence-based and so we can implement changes within our own practice and be able to communicate with others about mispractices to our colleagues, whether they're SLPs or not, sometimes even nurses or doctors. 
And, you know, sometimes they just don't know and it's not their area of expertise and that's totally okay. But as SLPs, you know, we, we are the dysphagia experts and we should be able to educate our team members and do what's best for our patients and be able to advocate for them instead of potentially doing more harm than good. Mm-hmm. Yep, absolutely. All right. Very good. Okay. Well, are we ready to jump into kind of our first area where we're going to lay the foundation work and really describe our terms and what your talk is going to cover today? Yeah. So I kind of wanted to discuss some terminology and uh, definitions before we really dig deeper into our conversation. Um, But so today we'll obviously be talking about dysphagia. And that is the medical term for difficulty swallowing. And we'll be um, speaking more specifically about oropharyngeal dysphagia. And there are two ways that oropharyngeal dysphagia can occur. And this can happen when we see impaired safety. So when material goes down the wrong pipe, as we say, so going down the airway and um, also impaired efficiency. And so that's when food or liquid doesn't quite go down the right pipe, down the esophagus, um, easily or efficiently, and this can lead to residue after the swallow. And so we'll also be talking about penetration and aspiration. And so penetration is when material enters the airway and into the laryngeal vestibule, Um, but it never quite passes the vocal folds. It might touch the vocal folds, and we call that deep penetration, um, but it doesn't pass them. And that's when aspiration can occur when it does pass the vocal folds and into the trachea, down to the lungs. Um, And so we'll also be talking about pneumonia, and that is an infectious acute inflammation of the pulmonary alveoli, so a lung infection. And then there's a more specific type of pneumonia that SLPs deal with more, and that is aspiration pneumonia. And so that is a pulmonary infection, and that's caused by aspiration of the pathogens, the bacteria um, that is then aspirated and goes down to the lungs, and then an infection occurs. Um, And I do want to add that aspiration pneumonia doesn't always happen because of swallowing, and we'll kind of touch more on that later. Um, But since we are talking about aspiration, there are two ways in which SLPs can objectively see the swallow and whether aspiration is occurring or not. And this is by either completing an MBSS, which stands for Modified Barium Swallow Study, or we can complete a FEES, that's F-E-E-S, which stands for Fiber Optic Endoscopic Evaluation of Swallowing. And, um, you know, they each have their pros and cons, but we're not going to get on that today. (laughs) Um, But an MBSS, so that's an x-ray fluoroscopy. We use that to assess the swallow and we coat the food and liquid with barium. And that's how we're able to see it go down and assess the movement of all the structures inside. And then with the fees, that uses a small flexible endoscope and that passes through the nose and we're able to see the swallow that way. Um, And I also just wanted to quickly review that there's a difference between aspiration pneumonia versus aspiration pneumonitis, and then there are other respiratory illnesses as well. And so, you know, as we said, aspiration pneumonia can occur due to disordered swallowing, um, but it could also be for other reasons, um, such as a patient being recently extubated or maybe they had a tracheostomy, or sometimes it could even be side effects from a medication. 
And so it's not always because of a true swallowing disorder. And then we have aspiration pneumonitis. And this is something that I learned as an SLP outside of school. <laughs> but this can occur when gastric contents or you know, reflux comes up from the esophagus. It goes into the pharynx, into our throat, and then it finds its way into the airway. And that's when the infection occurs. And um, then, of course, there are other respiratory illnesses that can happen that are not aspiration related. So those are a few things that we'll kind of be chatting about more. Perfect. I'm so glad that you are hitting on that because I agree with you. I did not learn about aspiration pneumonitis until a practicing SLP. Like I hadn't heard of that. And I'm like, wait, what? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I used to be able to, you know, like come in with that diagnosis and I would think, is that aspiration pneumonia? Maybe I should look at their swallow. And then I eventually learned, no. <laughs> Right. Yeah. So if we get consulted and it's already in the patient's chart that they have aspiration pneumonitis, and it's also documented that there was observed um, vomiting or regurgitation after um, like coming out of surgery or something like that, then they might not actually have dysphagia. So it's, it's a piece of the puzzle to consider. I'm not saying that once you see that, you're like, oh, they don't need our services. No, we need to complete the orders and we need to evaluate, but it's, it's something you need to know to have in your knowledge bank. Exactly. Um, so yeah, so I'll give kind of a brief overview of what we'll be talking about more in detail. Um, but essentially, we'll be discussing uh, common myths or misconceptions within evaluating, treating, and managing dysphagia, uh, specifically within the healthcare setting and adult population. Um, we'll also discuss why they are not evidence-based. And um, we'll also talk about critical thinking processes when we are approaching um, the evaluation and treatment of dysphagia. So that we can be sure that we're not misdiagnosing or potentially placing the patient at risk of declining in health or quality of life. Perfect, excellent. Okay, so are we ready to jump into those common dysphagia misconceptions and malpractices? Absolutely. All right, let's go, I'm excited. Yeah, so the first one that I'm gonna talk about is actually one that I used to believe was true. <laughs> And this one is that aspiration means that a patient will develop aspiration pneumonia. And, you know, so I used to see on a swallow study, if a patient was aspirating and, you know, let's say that was thin liquids, I used to think, oh my goodness, I cannot let them have thin liquids anymore. I need to, and I'm ashamed to say this, I need to be a diet police and be, keep an eye on them and be sure they're not going to aspirate on that. And, um, you know, but I'm glad that I don't believe this anymore. <laughs> and Very funny. <laughs> <laughs> and like, so, yeah, so now we know that there are multiple factors that come into play when it comes to a patient actually developing aspiration pneumonia. And uh, one of my favorite pieces of literature discusses this, and it's titled uh, Pneumonia Factors Beyond Aspiration. And this is by Dr. John Ashford. And on his website, along, I think it's with Michelle Skelly as well, it's Essay Swallowing Services. They have a chart out on the website that beautifully lays out this, this information and it's easy to understand it. Um, but essentially there are three main factors that would need to be affected in order for a patient to develop aspiration pneumonia. Um, and these three factors or three pillars include uh, the patient's oral health status, 
their immune system status and the occurrence of aspiration, whether they're aspirating or not. And so essentially they would have to have um, poor oral health and be immunocompromised and actually be aspirating for the patient to be at high risk of developing aspiration pneumonia. And um, what's pretty neat about this is that it highlights the importance of oral care. So for the patient to go from high risk to low risk of developing aspiration pneumonia, they would have to have good oral health. And you know they could still be immunocompromised, they could still be aspirating, but if we're on top of that oral care, we can significantly reduce the patient's risk of, de of developing an infection. And so it's really important for us to educate the importance of oral care to our patients, to their family members if they're unable to do it themselves, or to staff members as well in nursing um, so that we can decrease that patient's risk of developing anything and potentially end up in the hospital again. And so, and we also know that there are other risk factors that come into play aside from these three pillars. And um, some of these include being bedbound, having decreased level of alertness or cognition, um, being dependent for feeding, already having a history of dysphagia or aspiration pneumonia, and um, being tube fed. So, um, you know, we know that aspiration doesn't always mean that a patient will absolutely develop pneumonia. Um, you know, we have patients that aspirate and they never get sick. <laughs> and we always wonder, you know, how is that happening? But, you know, we have the information and, you know, we need to just consider all of the factors that come into play um, for a patient to be at higher risk so that we can appropriately intervene when we need to. Yes, excellent. Um, I don't have any stats on this and I probably need to have some in-depth conversations with people who like study this or work in this area a lot, but I see anecdotally, I see a lot of reflux with people who have a PEG tube and then the potential to aspirate on that reflux is also very high, which is really not good for their health. Not just the fact that they're aspirating, but that they're aspirating reflux content, right? That's really excessively damaging to the lung tissue. Exactly. So, yeah. So every time I have a patient at the hospital with a PEG tube, I am very strict about those reflux precautions. And, you know, when they're feeding the patient through the tube, they need to be as close to 90 degrees and then even afterward as well. And so, yes, that's definitely a big concern um, within the healthcare setting. So yeah, that's dangerous for acid to be going down the lungs and Yikes. <laughs> um, so another very common misconception um, that exists even, you know, within outside the field of SLP and outside as well is that when a patient is coughing at bedside, that means that they are aspirating. And so, you know, sometimes a cough doesn't mean that a patient is aspirating. Sometimes it could be just chronic cough. It could be allergies. It could also be a side effect from a medication that's causing that patient to cough. Um, and sometimes it could even be reflux. You know, with reflux, it could lead to globus sensation, so feeling something in the throat, and it might make the patient feel like they need to cough. And so we just never really know. And, you know, no one can ever be 100% certain that a patient is aspirating at bedside. And um, there's research that tells us that there are screening tools that can really help us increase our accuracy of detecting 
aspiration at bedside. And there was one study that discussed that some SLPs were able to detect aspiration with up to 97% sensitivity when using the uh, three ounce water test. And so, you know, that's pretty close. And even if someone could be 100% accurate and using the best screening tools available, they'll never know why the patient is aspirating. They will never know the physiological impairments or whether the issue is a strength issue or is it a timing and coordination issue. And, you know, that would require different therapy approaches if it's a weakness thing or a timing thing. And so, you know, we just never know what's happening. We'll never know how to approach it just from bedside. And um, another way to kind of describe this issue is imagine having a doctor diagnose you um, with a certain disease and without doing any kind of objective testing. You know, would you be willing to pay for their services and maybe the medication or the treatment that comes with it? Um, with them being not 100% certain on the diagnosis, would you be willing to dish out your time and your money and even put your your health at risk? And that would probably be a no. I would hope that would be a no. <laughs> but um, you know, as medical professionals, we shouldn't be guessing from bedside. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, that's something we we like to keep reminding people. And the kind of the reply to that is often SLPs feel trapped and that they are not supported by their administration to access imaging. And so there's a there's a lot of work going on in our field as well to equip them and empower them to become advocates and to let our supervisors and administration know that we cannot do our job effectively, efficiently, or accurately if we don't have access to these testing um, imaging. Definitely, and I myself was in that position at the skilled nursing facility. And, you know, luckily we had a mobile van that would come out every week to do the swallow studies, Um, you know, but sometimes I would evaluate a patient and then I would have to wait maybe a week to do the study. And, you know, it was kind of encouraged to pick them up and maybe try some things, but I, sometimes I just didn't know, is this even dysphagia? I don't really know how to manage this without completing the study. And so I kind of had to just discuss with administration, you know, this is what I'm seeing at bedside, but I'm not certain. And I don't really want to initiate treatment just yet because I have no idea what's going on. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And so sometimes we just have to have that conversation and explain it in a way that, you know, it's not that we don't know what we're doing, but we just need the necessary testing to help us, you know, figure out what's going on inside. And sometimes it's not even dysphagia. So you might just do an eval only. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there there are so many fun stories along with, you know, advocating for that instrumental. The patient goes in only to find a foreign object lodged in their pharynx, for example. You know, like there, there isn't an actual physiological issue. <laughs> There's dentures stuck in their throat, right? Let's get those out. <laughs> so we can never discount the importance of imaging, not just to do to direct our treatment plan and how we will approach managing their dysphagia, but, you know, to rule out other things such as that. That that can be scary having dentures in there and then you start doing the CTAR on them or effortful swallow. I don't know. That just sounds really dangerous to me. (laughs) Yes. Yes. Oh, Lordy. Yes. Now I've got the shivers all over. Um, so, so yeah, so we just discussed that coughing at bedside might not even be aspiration, you know, but maybe it is. 
Um, so another myth or misconception is that, you know, if the patient is coughing on thin liquids at bedside, then, you know, we need to thicken those liquids. And so if we're changing a person's diet, more specifically a patient's liquids at bedside, um, this could potentially, potentially cause more harm than good. And so again, you know, the only way that we can know if thicker liquids are safer is by actually seeing it during an objective instrumental, whether it be an MBSS or fees. And um, so an example of this being more harmful than beneficial would be, let's say we have a patient whose swallow has decreased pharyngeal strength, so it's a weak swallow, it's not very efficient. And so thicker liquids could be more difficult to swallow as it's thicker and it's heavier. And this can result in more residue in the pharynx after they swallow. And then they could eventually aspirate this. And especially if they're very weak and they can't clear the thickened liquids out of their airway, you know, this could lead to pneumonia. Mm -hmm. We really don't want to do that. And, you know, why would we want to thicken someone's liquids at bedside when we don't even know if it's beneficial? So we need to be doing those objective instrumentals. We don't want to be guessing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I can't remember where I read this. I'm going to have to go back and look it up, but I believe that the outcomes for people who aspirate thickened liquids versus thin liquids, the people who aspirate thickened liquids have poorer health outcomes than the individuals who have aspirated thin. So that's another consideration to make. If you are already working with a medically fragile individual but yet they're they're stable, but they do have some other health concerns, then that's another piece to put into your critical thinking cap. Right. Yeah. And if, if my patient's going to be aspirating, I would rather them be aspirating on thin liquids and water versus thicker, heavier liquids that are just much more difficult to cough out versus thin liquids. So definitely. Yeah. I've, I've read that research as well. And um I always try to tell my colleagues, especially newer clinicians, you know, wait until we do the instrumental so that we can really see what's going on. All right. Anything else for thickened liquids here before we go on to our critical thinking processes and dysphagia dysphagia management section? Yes. So um, I also wanted to um, chat about penetration on an instrumental when we see that and that not necessarily meaning that it's abnormal or disordered. And so as SLPs, when we see penetration on an instrumental, sometimes it can scare us. (laughs) But essentially, you know, there's no research that indicates that penetration increases a patient's risk of developing a pneumonia or an infection. And um, so when I see clinicians kind of fearing penetration, especially newer ones, I, I like to talk about needing to know more about normal swallowing before we can even diagnose or treat dysphagia. And, you know, a lot of us work with the older population and, you know, this is when we need to know more about presbyphagia and presbyphagia is not dysphagia. Um, And what it is, is it's changes in the swallowing mechanism in healthy older adults. And, you know, the swallow of a healthy older adult is not going to be the same as that of a healthy 20-year-old. You know, it's going to be different. And um, but that doesn't mean that their swallow isn't normal. And so some of these changes that we might see on an instrumental um, when it comes to an older, 
healthy adult uh, could include a later onset of swallow response, um, decreased lingual strength, penetration is one of them, uh, decreased sensation, and just kind of an overall swallow, uh, overall slower swallow response. And a lot of these things kind of scream dysphagia to a lot of clinicians when they see this on an instrumental. Um, you know, and if these changes do result in um, significantly decreased airway safety or efficiency, and this is impacting the patient's uh, nutrition or hydration, then, you know, it is, that's not normal and we should intervene. Um, but if the swallow is definitely normal and functional, why would we want to thicken the patient's liquids? And um, I kind of wanted to point to a paper that kind of discusses this, and it's titled um, Presbyphagia versus Dysphagia, Identifying Age-Related Changes in Swallow Function. And this is by Yvette McCoy and Rinki Varandani Desai. And um, they write in the paper that overmanaging the older adult on the basis of false assumptions could lead to unnecessary restrictions on nutritional intake and quality of life. And so, you know, as humans, we love to eat, we love to drink. And, you know, if we don't need to thicken a patient's liquids, why should we? And um, Dr. Ianessa Humbert has also discussed that as well. And she stated that, you know, we shouldn't do something because it makes us feel better or because it makes us more comfortable. Um, we should make decisions that are based off of evidence. And that way we're not restricting a patient's diet and just decreasing their quality of life. Yes. Excellent. Excellent points. Um, I wanted to circle back um, to talk a little bit more about penetration when we view it on a video swallow study, MBFS. And um, I totally agree with everything you say. Um, penetration is normal and to be expected. Um, but in all things, the frequency and severity with which it happens does need to, you know, alert you to different things. So if you're seeing intermittent penetration to the vocal folds, but it's clearing, it's not leaving any residue in the vestibule or anywhere in the airway then that person has a pretty functional swallow and they have a very, very low risk for aspiration, right? If you're seeing consistent penetration to the vocal folds and there's residue when they finish the swallow and their airway opens up and you see that coating of barium in their vestibule, that could be concerning, right? Exactly. Yeah. So when we see penetration on an instrumental, you know, we do have to remember that it, that it's normal and definitely a common occurrence, but we also do need to consider the overall picture. So what was the patient's or the swallow penetration aspiration score? You know, how deep is this going? Uh, what was the patient's response to the penetration? Did it eventually become aspirated with no attempt to clear? And also think about the patient's diagnosis and their medical history and I'm going to bring up the three pillars again. What's their oral health status? What's their immune system status? Before thinking that it's something that needs to be addressed. And also something that I wanted to add about penetration is that if we see a patient penetrate during the swallow study or the fees and they don't begin to cough, that's normal and expected. Um, so the normal response to penetration usually is a subsequent second swallow or maybe even a voluntary 
throat clear to clear the material out. It happens to me all the time. And, you know, so you should expect if the material does eventually become aspirated, if it goes below the vocal folds, then you would expect to see a cough. And if you don't see the expected response, then that gives you information that tells you about the patient's laryngeal sensation, you know, if it's decreased or impaired. And um, so that'll tell you more about the patient's swallow function and then how to move forward. Is this disordered or not? So we really have to look at the overall picture before moving forward. Yes, I love it. That is so important. We've really got to have big picture. Like we need to, to dive into the particulars and really know the details. And then we have to pull way back out and look at the whole picture again and make sure we're checking all these boxes. So I love that point you made. Excellent. Absolutely. Yeah. All right. Okay. Good for critical thinking processes for dysphagia management. Yeah. So that's actually what I included in my critical thinking processes too. <laughs> <laughs> It's like you can't talk about dysphagia management without like bring like already doing the critical thinking, right? right so exactly. Okay. Like we've been talking about this the whole time. Leanne is just um, <laughs> <all catching> <laughs> I, I do want to reiterate that, you know, as clinicians, if we're treating dysphagia, we really need to understand what is normal before we can identify what's disordered. And that's something that we learn in grad school too, when we're taking our language courses in pediatrics, you know. There's a language difference versus disorder. You need to know the difference. And um, so with swallowing, normal, uh, I'm sorry, normal swallowing is very variable. Normal swallows can look so different from each other. You know, there's no one perfect swallow that needs to occur for it to be normal. And that piece of information is what really changed how I approached dysphagia. I took a course by Dr. Humbert and it was normal swallowing. And I was so mind blown. I was so mind blown. I thought I need to tell everybody about this. I had no idea. <laughs> and that changed the game for me, definitely. And so when we're talking about critical thinking, we definitely need to know about normal swallowing. Yes. It's almost like if you, if you, yeah, if you don't know what a normal swallow looks like and like newsflash, it is different from what we were taught in school. We were taught probably a normal swallow of, no, it, it was an ideal swallow. We were taught what an ideal, most perfect example of a swallow is not even something that might be normal for a 20 year old because Dr. Humpert did research and, and got college kids, healthy young adults, and saw that they um, will fill their velliculae before the swallow. They will have, you know, quote, premature spillage to their velliculae, and they have a normal swallow, exactly. right? Yeah. So, yeah, we were taught what an ideal swallow looks like, not what normal is, I feel. That's my opinion. Yes, and, and I think, you know, graduate programs should definitely try to implement that. And I know it's, it's difficult to throw everything into our graduate courses. There's just so much to learn, but I think that's definitely something that's, that's important to at least kind of learn the basics on. And I remember she even discussed um, normal swallowing with pills that one totally also just opened my eyes and I thought, Oh my gosh, even I struggle with pills. So. <laughs> yes. Yeah. It's good stuff, y'all. Good stuff. We we need to consider that what we might be expecting people to do is an ideal swallow. And 
like one in a hundred people might have that. <laughs> and so we need to recognize what is normal. What is what is a good swallow that is efficient bolus transportation and is protecting their airway? And that can look like a lot of different things. And as long as they have bolus efficiency to some degree, to an acceptable degree, and they're protecting their airway to an acceptable degree, they have a normal enough swallow. That's good. It's functional. It's good. Eval only. <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. Um, also, like going back to what you were talking about, about the pneumonias and their relationship to aspiration, um, there's a pretty good quote from Dr. James Coyle um, from a presentation he did at ASH in like 2008. And he said that all respiratory illnesses are not pneumonia and all pneumonias are not aspiration related. So if we saw a patient and we, you know, cleared him for a diet and then suddenly they pop up with a pneumonia and we're like, oh my gosh, that was me. I did that. Oh, I'm a terrible SLP. Like, you know what, friend, first do some digging in that chart and find out if you can see any indicators other than a prandial aspiration reason for them acquiring that pneumonia. There are other things at play here. Exactly. And I've totally been there. You know, I put someone on a regular and thin diet and then someone comes to me saying this patient has a pneumonia and I'm just like, <gasps> initially at least. And then I stopped to think, well, wait a minute. There are other kinds of things that might be going on within their health. And yeah, you do have to stop and, and think about it. And when we're doing the chart review, you know, look at all the other possible causes. Sometimes even heart failure can lead to other issues that can lead to respiratory illnesses. And, you know, so, but if it is aspiration related, you know, then I'm sure the clinician intervened, did the swallow study and, you know, they have objective information saying, you know, kind of defending their case essentially as to, and we should always approach it that way, why we're making certain decisions. Always be able to back up your your reasons and your decisions. Um, but I, I do love that that quote by Dr. Coyle. And, you know, we shouldn't always assume that it's aspiration related. And he, he says, you know, if they are, then we got to look at the big picture, complete the bedside, do the instrumental, um, if it's indicated and what were the deficits and go, go from there. And yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Another point he made is that aspiration may not be related to a swallowing disorder, which you touched on in the beginning. Um, aspiration can uh, result from another, uh, a number of other sources. So I think those pieces of information are really key to us because at least the way my brain works, it's very, it can be very linear. So it's like A plus B equals C. If they, you know, so if they have a pneumonia, then they must be aspirating. And that is inaccurate. There are many causes and we need to be aware of them and be able to um, do the chart review and be the detective that can find out, is this aspiration related or it, could this be due to something else um, along with our clinical swallow evaluation and instrumental too, so. Yeah, that was, that was a wonderful presentation. Um, and for those that are listening, that one is titled uh, Differential Diagnosis of Aspiration Pneumonia. So that one is really important for us to be able to know the differences and different causes that can lead to respiratory illnesses. And so that one's a good one. Yeah. And we'll have the links up for all the things that we've been talking about um, up in the show notes on speechuncensored.com for you guys to access and read up. 
Um, Because even even though we've formed very strong opinions about things, I always encourage people to read the documents for yourself and assess the validity of the document. Like not all research is created equal Mm -hmm. and like adding one more thing to our bucket to be responsible for, but we need to be able to assess the validity and the accuracy and the the strength of the research that's being produced. Um, Because not everything that's published is high quality. Right. (laughs) FYI, (laughs) just because it's been published doesn't mean it's gospel. Yeah, don't believe everything you read. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, All right. But I I know that I mentioned earlier that it's important to identify the problems within dysphagia management and be able to implement the change and also to communicate these changes uh, or necessary changes with our colleagues. And so uh, we should be able to tailor that education and share that information effectively with our team. And so uh, we should be able to keep it simple for colleagues that are not very well versed in dysphagia and, um, you know, where it's not within their scope of practice. And normally uh, I like to explain to maybe like PTs and OTs or the nurses what I saw on an instrumental for example, uh, maybe that thicker liquids were going down the wrong pipe. And I'll, I'll tell them, oh, no, you know, the thicker liquids were worse. We're sticking with thin liquids. Or maybe that a chin tuck, you know, actually uh, made the patient aspirate. So I explained to them. And a lot of the times they, they're shocked <laughs> and they just didn't know this. And they end up, you know, thanking me for telling them because they had no idea. And then we also have some colleagues that prefer information to be presented via, you know, research article, and that's how they want to learn it. And so we can then go online, print it out for them and, you know, share that with them. And so I think that's also very important when we are identifying these myths and misconceptions, not only for ourselves, but to be, to be able to share that information with others that are also working with the patient. And so, you know, the goal is always to improve their quality of life and keep them out of the hospital again. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I love that. Like it is, I've, I haven't taken a very organized approach to it, but I feel like it would be really useful to have a, like a computer file that's just got like research to share with colleagues in, in the instances of, you know, fill in the blank to help support reasons why we need nurses not to recommend a chin tuck every time they hear someone cough, you know, (laughs) like, Every everything right that we come across that we feel like is um, misunderstood element of our practice that would be useful for like here's the research that shows, um, yeah. I'm also like a very visual person. Like I really love very simple um, visual representations of this information. And so, th- one of the resources you mentioned on SA swallowing services website is that they have an image of like the three pillars of aspiration pneumonia and it is so succinct and so perfect you can just like print out that image and share it with your nursing staff or your colleagues and be like here it is you guys it's simple and straightforward and yeah it kind of does the work for you that's exactly what I did I have it printed out at work and I have it you know in my speech station next to the computer and I have copies that I can share with patients too to kind of demonstrate you know why it's important to brush your teeth and et cetera. Um, but yeah, I, I love that chart and I love to share that one. Yeah, it's a good one. I love handouts. They're so fun. Yeah. <laughs> they just take like forever to create. And so then I hit up the Google and see if anyone else has done the heavy lifting right. for me. <laughs> has it been done yet? No. 
<laughs> it's like, all right, fine, I'll do it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. This was great. Amanda, thank you so much. You have really touched on some really important features of common dysphagia misconceptions and malpractices and um, equipping us as SLPs with this foundational knowledge um, really helps move our dysphagia management forward as a, as a field. Um, when we're all doing as close to the same thing, then that really lends a lot of credibility. Um, so I love it. This is so great. Yeah. Thank you for inviting me to be a guest on your podcast and talk about all of the dysphagia things that are inside of my brain. <laughs> yes, always fun to talk so, about. So good. Okay. I feel like I have one more question. Oh, can I ask you some questions about um, if you can think of like an instance when um, you needed to approach a colleague or an interdisciplinary team to share some of this information? Um, how did you prepare yourself and then how did you deliver that information? So this actually happened to me. Um, I had a patient who kept coughing at, at bedside and even when I wasn't really presenting anything for them to swallow and, but I was still kind of concerned and I had to wait, um, to get the swallow study done um, but I was kind of being pushed to start treating already. And well, you know, they were telling me, try to do some strategies or just try anything. Why, why can't you do this? And so um, I kind of just printed out some things just in case. And I went to go, you know, talk to my boss and I, and I explained, you know, why the objective instrumental is necessary. And luckily we have them, but I, I can't really do anything until then. And I was able to present some, some evidence and some research because luckily our, our colleagues are pretty big on that. And honestly, that was enough to get them to understand where I was coming from and why I wanted to hold off on doing anything with this patient. And you know, from then on, I really didn't have any trouble with that. Excellent, very good. Um, my other question, is there a time that you can like vividly remember like learning about one of these misconceptions and then how it like immediately changed how you practice dysphagia management yes so this was in the very beginning of my clinical fellowship year I had an older patient who was aspirating on thin liquids and I think even nectar thick liquids and so we had placed the patient on, on honey thick liquids and, you know, she was not happy about it and I wouldn't be either. And, um, I thought that if she would have thin liquids, like she wanted that she was going to develop a pneumonia and die and it was going to be my fault. And then I ended up taking a course where I read something online and, and this was much after this patient was already gone. And I, I wish I would have known this information before, but she could have definitely had thin liquids. I mean, it wasn't a lot of aspiration and she had excellent oral care and, you know, she wasn't really sick. And so that, that really changed it for me. And I always think about her every time, every time I think about, you know, the three pillars and, you know, how important it is to be able to demonstrate that this patient might be at little to no risk of developing pneumonia. And that's, that's one instance that I can remember. That's excellent. That is such a beautiful example of how 
um, I know like the way I was trained was their risk for, or, or the idea of keeping them safe from pneumonia was whether or not they aspirated. Mm-hmm. And so if they aspirated, well, then they were at a very high risk factor. So we needed to compensate for that as much as possible by modifying their diet. Right. And now with this knowledge of um, the bigger picture with the three pillars and with their health status and their oral care, we can know that that doesn't equal really unfortunate impact to their quality of life. Right. Like, it's, yeah. it's not as, it's not as de- detrimental as we, as we thought in grad school. And yeah, we did everything that we could to stop aspiration and, you know, it was the scariest thing ever and we can never let it happen. But, you know, now we know that, I mean, even in a normal swallow, aspiration can occur. And unfortunately it happens to me often when I'm chugging water. And so, (laughs) but again, you have to look again at the bigger picture, you know, what happens when, when this person's aspirating, are they coughing it out and clearing it? They're totally good. And so you're right. We have to kind of take a step back, look at everything before we can really implement or restrict the patient with anything. Yeah. Excellent. All right. So cool. Amanda, this was wonderful. Thank you so much for preparing such a great outline and guiding us through step by step um, each of these things and, and not just awareness to what these misconceptions may be, but then what we can do about them, how we can change our practice and how we can communicate that with our colleagues. Um, I love that. It's not just like, oh, here's some information now, you know, go figure it out. Like yeah. you are working with us, guiding us, helping us. This is so good, Amanda. Really, really appreciate it. Thank yeah. you so much. Yeah. Thanks for having me. I'm always excited to talk about this, especially with newer clinicians. It's stuff that, you know, it's important. We need to know. Um, yeah. So thanks for having me to come to come chat about this. Loved it. Um, if people want to continue this conversation with you, how can they reach out to you? They can definitely email. Um, I don't know if you can include that along with the links. And I also have an Instagram, and that is amanda.ccc.slp. And a lot of clinicians reach out to me on their grad students, clinical fellows, and I'm always available to chat on there as well. Perfect. Excellent. All right, cool. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks for listening to another edition of the Speech Uncensored podcast. Show notes with links to resources mentioned in the episode are posted on speechuncensored.com. I'd love for you to subscribe to the podcast and leave a thoughtful review on Apple Podcasts. Shout out to the hardworking team at speechtherapypd.com for their sweet editing skills and for sponsoring ASHA CEU credit for this episode. And finally, I'd like to leave you with my wish for you to nourish your mind so that your practice can flourish. 